Father, we thank you for, for Nathan. We thank you for Maxwell Church. Um, thank you for the joy of having him with us here this morning. Thank you for the story of grace that you have and you are writing in the life of that church. We pray for continued growth and maturity, um, for people to be changed and for people to be saved through that church. Um, Father, we pray for John as he starts his internship, uh, that you would strengthen him as he serves you. Pray for all the leaders of that church and for all of the members there, Father, um, that as we get into the rhythms again in September, they would find a, a renewed joy and desire to, to love you and to serve you and to love one another well. We pray for wisdom with regards to the building and pray for the provision of a community center, Father, and help them just to navigate that. May all of those things work together to help them um, be a, a, a light uh, within the darkness there, to be a, a stable witness, Father, um, within that community. And uh, Father, we just do pray for the partnership too. It would serve to encourage and strengthen uh, churches and leaders and that it would serve the advancement of the gospel within um, our local areas. So we just give you thanks for all these things. Pray for Nathan as he preaches now. Uh, give him your strength and help. And um, would your spirit, as we know it will, would your spirit speak through your, your word and would we be humble, obedient listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Lee. Okay, well, uh, please uh, turn with me in a Bible if you have one. We're going to look at Psalm 48. It's a good thing uh, as a church, isn't it, to open our Bibles together and to sit under uh, the authority and the life-giving power of the Word of God. Uh, and I'm uh, glad to be here this morning. It's a privilege to be here and for us to share together in the Word. It's also good to have our Bibles open, isn't it, just so you can make sure that I'm not talking nonsense and we can see from the, from the Word of God whether, you know, we, need, we always remember this, don't we? I know, I'm not the authority. Lee is not the authority. God is the authority. And we, we come to his word now uh, to hear from him. So Psalm 48. Let me read this. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together as soon as they saw it they were astonished they were in panic they took to flight trembling took hold of them there anguish as of a woman in labor by the east wind you shattered the ships of tarshish as we've heard so we have seen in the city of yahweh of hosts in the city of our god which god will establish forever we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. 
Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, I think this is a great place to meet, actually, this building. Um, and it's quite impressive. It looks, it reminds me a little bit of the Queen Elizabeth Hospital uh, in Glasgow, a little bit in the main foyer. I'm getting smiles. Has someone said that before? Yeah. Okay, well, I think it does, because you've got all these windows looking down and stuff like that. It's quite impressive. Um, and there's, there's, there's lots of buildings that are impressive, aren't they? I, I think back to the, the, the coronation of King Charles, and I'm making no comment either way about what we think about that. But uh, the setting, at very least we can acknowledge the setting is um, awe-inspiring. You know, the buildings that were built in, I think it was 960 AD, Westminster Abbey, it was consecrated in the 1000s. And I think there's been over 60 or over 50 monarchs that have been crowned in that space. Uh, and the space itself is imposing, it is beautiful, it is grand. You could say the same about St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, we went on a tour around there in 2013, I think, Steffi. Um, you sort of loved and hated it, didn't you? Like, uh, the <laughs> hated it, did you? Okay. Yeah, because uh, the, the place is amazing, but obviously, you know, you just can't escape the, some of the history of it. But one of the things our tour guide said, and I'm not sure if I believe him, but I'll tell it to you anyway, is he said that in St. Peter's Basilica, it is so tall, you could fit the Great Pyramid of Giza inside St. Peter's Basilica. Not sure if it's true, but let's just pretend it is. They're grand. They're imposing. You go to a place like that and we know that in history often it would be monarchs, royalty that would build these buildings because only they could afford them. And you, you look at these buildings and you go, well, what kind of king or queen is this built for? Look at the splendor, the opulence. They, they, they inspire a response, awe at the architect, the builder, for what they've accomplished. So today, in Psalm 48, we're going to look at Zion. We're going to look at Zion. I don't know if, if that's a word you're familiar with. Maybe you're really familiar with it. Maybe you've never heard it before. Um, we're going to look at Zion, and I want us to see the gospel from the Word of God in how the Bible describes what Zion is. So we're brought before, uh, we're brought before Zion, and we're we're asked to look at it, to consider it. We're to walk round it, verse twelve. And whilst this psalm is rooted in history, and it is rooted in history, absolutely, it it, it far transcends history. It far transcends simply a geographical location of Jerusalem, because here is an offer to treasure what God has made and promised for his people. It's a place called Zion, which in a, in a very typical biblical way becomes a truism that encompasses lots of elements of truth. So, so Zion was a, a geographical historical place, yes, but the Bible often does that. It takes something true, historical, and real, 
and then loads it with meaning and significance for God's people. And that's what happens with Mount Zion, Zion as well. And so we, we, we are, we are uh, asked to come and see what God has done. So yes, look at Jerusalem as a historical place. Look at the history of the Bible. See what God's done for his people. We're asked to see what God has built. Because Zion transcends Jerusalem and actually represents everything God has built. His, his dwelling place. And where is the dwelling place of God? It's wherever he chooses. It's everywhere. It's the universe. We're asked to see what God has promised. He's promised his son, Jesus, the perfect savior, the ark of safety, the building that we, that we are part of as, as, as living stones. That's Zion. We're asked to see what God has bought. He's bought a people for his own possession, a holy building built upon the foundation of Christ. And so the church itself is Zion, yeah? And we're asked to see what God has promised. He's promised us an inheritance, a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, where he will dwell with his people. That's Zion. And we behold this great city, Zion, in, in this psalm, and, it, and it's bringing us before the king of the universe, because it's his city. And that's why it's beautiful, because he is the maker of it, he is its builder, and he is in its midst. We don't, we don't belong to Zion, we don't belong to a country and, and simply enjoy the benefits of it. No, we, we belong to the people of God, and he is who we adore and love, and cherish. Uh, I think of um, Ezekiel's vision. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with that in, in, in Ezekiel. And right at the beginning of uh, the book of Ezekiel, there's this crazy vision that Ezekiel has. And he, he's talking of these, these wild, angelic beings that have eyes and wings um, and and basically, what Ezekiel sees is a vision of, of uh, God in his temple. But he, God leaves his temple. That's what we see in Ezekiel. And these, these uh, angels and everything, what's actually being described is a mobile throne chariot, for lack of a better word. That's what's being described. A mobile throne chariot. God's on it, and he leaves the temple. But in, in Psalm 48, we're seeing the exact opposites. We are beholding where God dwells. It's incredible. And so we're brought not just to the towers and the ramparts of Zion, but we're actually brought to the throne room, the dwelling place of the Lord. And it, so it's a call of the gospel. We're asked to come and behold the dwelling place of God to walk about it, to adore it, to trust in the God who's made it. And so there's four things I want us to see in Psalm 48. As we look at this psalm, firstly, we are invited to see the beauty of Zion. Secondly, we are to rest in the safety of Zion. 
Thirdly, we are to trust in the steadfast love of Zion. And finally, we are to respond to the gospel of Zion. And I think that by doing so, I hope this will aid us to rejoice in God this morning. And maybe you're here today, I don't know, most of you. I don't know if you're here every week. I don't know if this is your first week. Have you been invited by, by someone to come along? If, if, if so, great. But I want us to consider what God offers in the gospel. We, wa- we want to see that the God of Zion is a God of steadfast love, that he is perfect and good, and that he is a king that has no peer. And I, and I, I just want to stress that before we get to uh, point one, because uh, I really do think, and, and maybe Lee, you can, uh, we can have an argument about this later, I really do think that this is probably the primary way that God reveals himself in his words. Uh, we don't want to just limit ourselves to one word because we want to take the whole Bible. But if we had to choose one way that was the main way that the Bible describes God, I think it is as king. I think it's as king. He is the great sovereign. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but even, even things like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, he's our shepherd king. Shepherds, kings were no the shepherds. Father, well, kings were known as fathers. We, we, we start at the beginning in Genesis 1, and we, we, he is the great creator. Kings were known as those who created, because they had the wealth. All the way through the Bible, we are called to respond to the king of kings and see him for who he is. Everything is, is under his dominion. And, and, and even in our psalm today, all four points of the compass are, are, are pointed to, included. A, a way of saying everything's under his sovereign power. So in, in verse 2, we have the far north. We have the east in verse 7, the east wind. We have the right hand in verse 10. And, and that's, a, that's a way of referring to the south if you're orientated east and and then we are to go through or behind in verse 13 which is another way of talking about the west all four points of the compass are pointed to nothing nothing is outside of his creation or will it's a we are called to respond in awe to the god of zion glorious things of thee are spoken Zion, city of our gods. So, friends, let's not walk away without looking. Verses 1 to 3, don't walk away without considering the beauty of Zion. Look at verse 2. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. And friends, we need to be absolutely clear here. This is, this is no Babel that we're talking about. This isn't some man-made monument we are to marvel at. No, what makes Zion beautiful is that God is there. God is there. He dwells within her. Verse 2. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Why? Because it's the city of the great king. 
It's his city. And he's made himself known, verse 3, as a fortress. It's, it's, it's all interlinked, isn't it? And once again, the Bible does exactly what needs to be done for us time and time again. The Bible lovingly, through the wisdom of God, calls us to see who God is and see who we are in light of who God is. Again and again, we, we're called to do that in the Bible. It's, it's one of the many reasons that it's good to meet together as a church every week, to, to remind ourselves of the beauty of God, the need of a saviour, of the reality of him as king and us as creatures. And that's a good thing. And to live and respond in light of that truth. If we get that the other way around and we we begin to make ourselves kings or rulers or queens of our own life, uh, we we automatically, we're diminishing God and elevating ourselves. It's, It's the fundamental sin of the Garden of Eden. The, the, the minimizing of the authority and sovereign kingship of God and the elevating of our own authority in our lives. And so much trouble comes from that. We haven't built a beautiful city called Zion. God has. We tried in Genesis 10, Babel, and uh, I, love, I love chapter 10 of, of well, it's, it's in many ways a tragic chapter, but I love that little bit in chapter 10 of, of Genesis where uh, humanity builds Babel, this massive building reaching to the heavens so that they could be like God. And then there's an amazing bit of sarcasm in the Bible where, uh, where, the, where the writer Moses says, God stooped down. He looked down, squinted down to see this tiny little speck that humanity had made to try and be like him. It's laughable. David wanted to build a house for God, didn't he? But what did God say? God said, no, I'm not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. It's going to last forever. And it's precisely because Zion is built by God, the transcendent monarch, that it is a, it is a fortress and it's a beautiful fortress. It's why uh, one man called Calvin starts a famous book, The Institutes. Uh, he starts it with this really helpful sentence. He says, this was written 500 years ago. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. It's quite flowery language. But there's two things to our wisdom. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And in Psalm 48, we're getting both. And so Zion stands as a testimony to this truth. It, it doesn't matter if, you, if we're talking about historical Jerusalem, Jerusalem as a physical city, because only through the delivering hand of God did Israel escape Egypt and go to the promised land and build Jerusalem. They didn't do it themselves. God did it. And it was a beautiful place, a land of milk and honey. Beautiful. It doesn't matter if by Zion we mean creation redeemed, uh, either Eden or the new creation, because none of us can speak galaxies into being. None of us can create beautiful flowers and animals and trees. 
God does that. It doesn't matter if by Zion we are referring to the bride of Christ, the church, because only by grace can we be saved. And it's, not, it's a gift of God, not of our own doing, not the result of works, so that none of us can boast in the beautiful bride of Christ that he has won and he has bought. There's a reason that the Bible is often described as a tale of two cities. I don't know if you've heard that before. A tale of two cities. We have Babylon and Zion. And Babylon is ruled by creatures. And look how it falls. The other is ruled by the king. And look what is set before us in the gospel. And so the beauty of Zion then, in, in a way it forces us to, to recognize the power and the authority of the creator. And, and really the sheer powerlessness that we actually have ourselves. And friends, that is, a, that is a, a helpful thing for us to grasp. Because so often, I don't know how, what you're, what, how you've got on in your lives, but I know that often it is when I try and overreach. It's when I forget that I'm human and that I, I'm t- I get tired and I need to sleep and I can't work all the time and I try and do everything or do too much or I, I, I say, I'm going to fix this problem and things go south so quickly instead of resting and acknowledging the beauty of what God has done for his people. It's good. It's good to do. And I think it's compelling. I think there's something compelling about the beauty of God and what he's done. I think it's a good thing for people to hear. Secondly, verses 4 to 8, we're encouraged to rest in the safety of Zion. Look at verse 8. As we've heard, so we've seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which he will establish forever. And so the sons of Korah paint this amazing scene for us uh, in these verses. Uh, I think it's a little bit like Lord of the Rings. You've got this picture of all the kings assembling. They're coming with all their mighty armies. They're going to absolutely destroy this pathetic place that these people are living in, this, this Jerusalem. What a joke. Uh, and, and I think you think of Isaiah and, and, and what we see happening in Isaiah uh, of this mighty king of Persia coming to eradicate this pathetic little kingdom. And in God's amazing way, he doesn't. And so uh, the, the psalm paints this picture of these kings coming, but, but as soon as they see this incredible fortress for themselves, they are astonished. They are astounded, verse 5. They flee. And so this is really the rebellious humanity that, that Psalm 2 talks about. They, they plot against the Lord's anointed, but they cannot endure the Lord of Zion. And so when confronted with God, they run. They run. And Zion is established or secured 
forever. And, and then we have these ships of Tarshish in verse 7, which symbolizes the sort of greatest seafaring power that the kings have to offer. And they're shattered. They're not safe. They're shattered. It's very similar to the, to the wrecking of the ships of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 27. And, and I think most strikingly in Revelation 18. So I'm going to just quickly go to Revelation 18. You can turn there with me if you want. This is a vision that John has of the uh, end of time. I'm going to read three, verse, three or four verses uh, from 18 verse 17. All the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all who, whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas! Alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. So here at the end of history, the great city. By the way, that's not Zion. It's Babylon. Falls under the judgment of God. It's, a, it's very provocative, uncomfortable, maybe. Very powerful. And notice that the seafarers and the shipmasters, they, they're crying, they're weeping. They've lost everything. Everything they put their trust in, they've built their lives upon, they've poured their hearts and souls into this great city. They've become wealthy and rich, and then they lose everything. And so the gospel, the good news storyline of the Bible says from cover to cover that although sometimes, and I think often, and I don't know how you feel, often the, the places that humanity builds that the Bible calls Babylon, it's, it's one of these amazing things again where it was a historical place, but it, it comes to symbolize something much greater. Babylon is the man-made powers. It's the world around us. And so often... It feels like Babylon is more powerful, more successful, and safer. And yet the truth of the gospel is that only Zion is safe. Only Zion is safe. Because Babylon will fall. And so we're, we're tapping into like the meta-narrative of the gospel. When we begin to see Zion, this this beautiful city of refuge. It's temporarily glimpsed when, when God, God brought a people out of Egypt into Jerusalem. We're beautifully glimpsed, imperfect. But it's permanently experienced in Christ. Because he is the refuge, the ark, who keeps his people safe, through the waters of God's judgment against sin and also establishes them forever when this world will fall and crumble. So to belong to the building of God, the, the body of Christ, Zion, 
the people of the king, to have our name written in the king's book, to know that the heavenly Jerusalem scene at the end of the Bible, coming down out of heaven, covered in jewels, is both a representation of the new creation and of the bride of Christ. To know that to be in Christ is to be in Zion and that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not famine, nakedness, sword, distress, embarrassment, suffering, pain, loss. Nothing will separate us. And to know that one day, one day I know I will be in Zion. I know I'm in Zion, in Christ, and I will be in Zion. I am safe. Jesus is victorious over Babylon. This is to know the safety only Zion affords. The the gospel doesn't say a safe life now. It says safety despite now. And let me just lean into this briefly. Christians, this is why, out of many things, the Bible warns us about the love of money, of building big barns. It's not that being wealthy is wrong, but being in love with the wealth of Babylon is fraught with danger. Being in love, captured by the fruit of Babylon rather than of Zion, is is wrong. In fact, it's ruinous. And again, perhaps you're, you're here today and maybe you're unconvinced or you're unsure about Jesus. Maybe you're here today because someone invited you. Well, if the beauty of how unlike us God is isn't enough, what about the safety? The safety and security that is offered in Jesus. Or thirdly, what about the third stanza of Psalm 48, which is an invitation to trust in the steadfast love of Zion? Look at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Uh, there's a part of me wondering if, uh, well, I was, was going to say this is why Lee, Lee invited me here today, but I suppose I did choose the topic. But uh, as, a, as, a, as a closet Presbyterian, uh, we, we love talking about the steadfast love of God. We love anything about covenant, don't we, apparently? Uh, and uh, this is what's going on here, the, the steadfast love of God, the hesed, the love of God, the covenant love of God. This is what the psalmist pictures Uh, here in verse 9. And even as we, the readers, are brought into the very heart of the city of Zion, to the temple, and not only there, but into the midst of it, this is what we view. We see the chesed, unfailing love of God. One where out of the perfect attribute of the love of the triune God, this, this promise-keeping love is given to the people of God, his children, and nothing can break it. Nothing can break it. God is not like us. 
He doesn't make promises and then break them. It's good to know that he's not like us. It's good to know that we can trust in a king that's better than us and whose love never fails, never stops, is never broken, is permanently unfailing. And we're reminded of that, that at the very heart of Zion, there is this God who is love. He keeps his word. He has promised shelter and, and peace uh, to his people under the shadow of his wing. He's promised to love them and be their God. And in response to this steadfast, immovable God of love, you know, in response to that, his name spreads, his fame spreads. I mean, how could it not? His name, verse 10, which, which, which really tells us about God's self-disclosure, his, his revealing act of making himself known, and also his praise, verse 10, reaches the whole world. So not only does his self-disclaimed name go out, it, it demands a response of praise. And it's interesting, verse 11, note that the people of Zion, they rejoice in his judgments. And we can rejoice in the judgments of God because he's not like us. He's not faulty. He doesn't make wrong judgments. We make wrong judgments. And the God of Zion then, the God Christians believe in, the God who is Jesus Christ, you know, he reveals himself in the Bible as, as a God of love. That is one of his many attributes, but one that he highlights himself so often in his words. And I just want to again uh, to speak on this a minute. I think this is really important. Because hate is not an attribute of God. Hate is not an attribute of God. Love is. What do I mean by that? Well, the God of the Bible pronounces judgment against all ungodliness and wickedness. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. But it's not because God is some sort of 50-50, yin-yang sort of love-hate being. That's not the God of Zion. Our God is the God of Hesed, steadfast love, a love unshakable that will refuse to allow any wickedness, any badness, any unrighteousness to taint his people or his dwelling place. He will not and cannot let it because if he does, he will break his promise because his place of dwelling will not be safe, it will not be good, it will not be beautiful. And so because he is the God of steadfast love, he responds, he must respond and judge the wickedness of the world. He's not a God of 50% hate and 50% love. He is the God of hesed. I, I think, again, this is compelling. I think this is compelling. This is the message of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his son. Finally then, briefly, we're called 
to respond to the gospel of Zion in verses 12 to 14. Verse 12, walk about Zion. Go around her, verse 13, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. We've admired Zion's beauty, its safety, its, its love. We're seeing all of these things. They're all foreshadowed in the actual historical Jerusalem. And they're fulfilled in Christ. God with us. The beautiful saviour of safety and love. And friend, it's a great mistake to think that the Zion we are to walk around in verse 12 and to consider in verse 13 is just the historical city near the Mediterranean. Let's just put that to one side. That's not the call of Psalm 48. It is not the full call. Jeremiah warns against this in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus warns against doing this in Mark chapter 13. Rather, this is a psalm of faith. To be sung with eyes of faith, trusting that one day our dwelling place will be the new creation, full of beauty and safety and love, but only attainable through the one who perfectly embodies all that the psalmist talks about. And in Jesus, that is so. So we are to walk around Christ. I I don't think that's a stretch. We are to consider Christ. We are to respond to the good news of Christ. We are to tell of Christ, verse 13. We're to tell the next generation. We're to tell anyone that listens, anyone we meet. Tell them of the glorious things spoken about Zion. And the founding Christ, and which by faith will be ours in a new world, Zion, where instead of ugliness, violence, and hate, there will be beauty and safety and hesed, steadfast love. Amen. Let me pray, and I'll hand back over to Lee. Gracious Father, we give you thanks. We confess today that we are human and flawed and frail and in many ways helpless. And we give you all the thanks, loving God, that you are none of those things. That you are greater. And that you sent your son, Jesus, to be our saviour. And to be the stone upon which the, the building, your people, would be built. Thank you that in Jesus we see the beauty of your gospel. Thank you that... We have safety found in him. I thank you that your steadfast love can never be broken. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.